This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his dense yet delightful new book, Palimpsests of Themselves, Logic and Commentary in Post-Classical Muslim South Asia, Asad Ahmad examines in layered detail the textual and commentarial tradition on the discipline in logic in early modern and modern South Asia. While constantly connecting his study to broader Muslim intellectual currents beyond South Asia, focused on the 17th century text Sulam al-Ulum, The Ladder of the Sciences by Muhibullah al-Bihari, Ahmad treats his readers to a journey through the operations, ambiguities and possibilities of the dizzyingly complex yet enormously profitable landscape of the logic tradition in South Asian Islam. Textually magisterial, historically grounded, and ferociously erudite, this book breaks new and critical ground about an extremely important topic that is yet all too infrequently studied. Here now is my conversation with Professor Asad Ahmad. Uh, hello, Asad. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, for writing uh, really this dazzling um, uh, book, uh, which will provoke conversations, I'm sure, in multiple fields. It's a really formidable uh, a book in many ways. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a difficult uh, book in the sense that it, it takes on a very difficult topic, but very successfully and very remarkably engages it with a meticulous detail. So I'm very looking forward to our conversation. As I said, we have a tradition of the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. Um, I was wondering if you could briefly share a bit with our listeners uh, about your journey. Uh, how did you become a scholar of Islam? Well, thank you, Shirali, first of all, for inviting me and for giving me this honor. And I'm, I'm uh, grateful that you find the book useful. Um, and uh, I, I also look forward to the conversation, of course. So your first question, well, my itinerary is a bit long, but the short version is that uh, I was uh, trained uh, as a kid, actually, in, in Pakistan, growing up there. Um, and the day was spent in a Catholic school, but my grandfather being a religious scholar, we spent quite a bit of time working on traditional texts um, in Arabic and Urdu and Persian and so on. And when I came to the U.S. as an undergraduate, I actually studied Western philosophy and literature and had put aside that, um, that training and that orientation that I had received in my formative years. Um, as an undergraduate, I studied Western philosophy and literature, and in the, in the area of philosophy, my concentration was logic. Um, I remember that in a couple of classes that pertain to theories of modalities and epistemology, um, especially reading Kripke's Naming and Necessity, I was led eventually to the Greek tradition, to Aristotle, and from there I came to the Arabs and to Islam eventually. So it was sort of a full circle return 
and here I am. Uh, I don't think I ever left after the age of about 20 or so. Terrific. So now the book uh, engages a number of different themes, but it is centered on this one pivotal uh, uh, text, uh, Sulam al-Uloom uh, by Muhibbul al-Bihari and the discipline of logic. I was wondering, you know, for our listeners, it might be useful before we get into some of the more details. Um, if you could perhaps briefly describe for our listeners uh, the discipline of logic in which this text is uh, situated and just uh, the place and the importance of this text uh, in the larger tradition, especially in South Asia, but maybe also beyond. So just setting the terrain a bit before we get into some of the other details in the following questions. Sure, of course. Uh, so the Sulam al-Ulum is the most advanced logic text written in South Asia. And of course, it is a culmination of a long series of deliberations and dialectics in the discipline. The story, as you and the listeners know, begins, of course, with Aristotle and his organon, organized, of course, after his death in late antiquity and receiving numerous commentaries uh, through the translation movement that already began in the late Umayyad period and, of course, bloomed in the Abbasid period. The organon received multiple translations, ultimately into Arabic, and from there bloomed a tradition of uh, debates, deliberations, remedies, uh, harmonization, and so on of the logical tradition. And that uh, culminated in the synthesis of Avicenna, where he introduced uh, re, in fact, restructured many elements of Aristotle's logic, but also uh, questioned fundamental premises of Aristotle's uh, um, conclusions, uh, including positions on modal logic, hypothetical syllogisms, and so on, a number of these things he himself introduced. And following Avicenna, there is a period of debate and dialectic about his work, especially in the formidable work of Fakhreddin al-Razi, um, and Rasi's reception of his critique, ultimately by figures like Abhari and uh, Hilli and Katabi and so on. So in the 13th century, then you get these logic textbooks, which become the mainstay of the Madrasa tradition. Um, and as you know, it was partly at least with the effort of Ghazali that logic had been, had been made central to that tradition. So after these 13th century logic texts, uh, such as the Shamsiya, for example, uh, and the Kashf, uh, the commentarial tradition takes off, and that is cultivated in the Madaris. Uh, ultimately, in South Asia, the same tradition through the trajectory that runs through Shiraz arrives in North India. And from there, you get the production of these commentaries and ultimately these mutun, such as the Sulam al-Ulum. Uh, so it, it sits within that large and long trajectory of the study of logic, Within the madrasa itself, the number of books in South Asia in the field of logic actually predominate. By one count, I think at least 11 books and slash commentaries were being read in the Darsenazami training system. And um, they penetrate various fields, um, you know, ranging from theology to sulul fiqh. Uh, so it's, it's a central and perhaps one of the most important disciplines that was cultivated in South Asia uh, and was a core part of the training circuit of the Darsana. Now, one of the major themes of the book is uh, the relationship between a text uh, like the Sulam and the commentarial tradition surrounding it. Uh, this book really is a theorization of how do we think about commentaries and texts and the relationship with each other, how do they cross-pollinate each other, and the role of commentaries in 
the, the kind of reception and the kind of life that a text takes. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit. I know this is a massive theme and you spend a lot of time and a lot of detail and a lot of complexity on it uh, in the book. And for our listeners, I would highly recommend the exercise of actually reading it uh, you know, closely. It's, it's, quite, it's quite an experience. But I was wondering if you could give a broad sense to our listeners who might be interested in this question of the relationship between the text and the commentarial tradition, how do they interact with each other, uh, and the kind of uh, way in which you theorize that relationship in this in this book. Right, Shirazi. Uh, thank you for, for that question. I think, as you say, this is the main uh, theoretical concern of the book. So I'll try to explain it in a few words. Uh, the position at which I arrived after you know many, many years of reading these commentaries, especially of the Sulam, is that a mutton that is meant to be commented upon is ultimately meant to be left also elusive and elusive. Uh, if a mutton, uh, and let me call it a hypotext because a commentary itself could be a mutton for another commentary. So a hypotext, uh, when it says everything, becomes sterile. The purpose of a hypotext, it seems, uh, for its author is to continue and project its voice into the future. And it's the commentarial tradition, the hypertext, that perpetuates this voice insofar as it is in large part curated by the hypotext itself. So each layer of commentary then speaks in a certain way the inner word and intentions of the underlying hypotext as led through its curatorial uh, effort. And uh, in the process of illuminating uh, the hypotext and speaking the hypotext in many ways through the voice of the previous author, it also delineates spaces that remain obscure. And so it performs the same exercise for its future hypertext with allusions and with hints and so on. So in many ways, the way I, I came to think of the tradition of commentary and its relation to the underlying text is that it is in some ways a um, a voice that is perpetuated through time. It's in many ways synchronous, of course, is developing uh, diachronically, but it's uh, it has a synchrony in it. Um, it's effectively in many ways the voice of the same author that's being projected in the future through the mazes of hints and illusions, uh, the elusiveness, uh, the calls to redress, um, the deliberate uh, misrepresentation by the author of his own position, and then hinting to the commentator to fix that position and effectively to create what appears to be an oral space within the written text. It's sort of a living tradition where the master continues to direct you uh, to uh, into a mutala, a deeper reading of, of the tradition through its own hands. I think that's what I can say at this juncture, um, and I'd be happy to elaborate more if you'd like. So what are some of the key commentaries of the Sulam that you that you examine in this uh, in this book and their, their importance and their role in terms of the life this, uh, this text takes? Right. So there are certain commentaries that in any tradition become gateway commentaries. Uh, they become the lens through which uh, the text, underlying text, is read. Uh, for the Sulam, these include uh, the commentary of Qadi Mubarak, who is an early commentator. He reflects the reading of the Sulam through the lens of Mir Damad. In fact, in his introduction, he effectively says, that this is a commentary that is very much like the Ufaq Mubin of Mir Dama. So that becomes one lens and one gateway through which that text, the Sulam, is read. Another commentary is Hamdullah, who is a Shi'i scholar, um, and he represents a particular reading of the text. 
which uh, incorporates partly uh, Mir Damad, but also includes other traditions uh, that were prominent in Shiraz in the previous generation, including uh, outside of Shiraz, uh, scholars like Harawi, for example. And then an important commentary, gateway commentary, is that of Bahr al-Ulum. This is Abdul Ali, son of uh, Nizamuddin, uh, the so-called founder of the Darsi Nizami, and there are a couple more. So these four or five commentaries become the main lens or the gateway into the Sulam, bringing, of course, bringing forward their own uh, agendas and philosophical synthesis into reading the text, but at the same time, as I said before, being led by the text uh, to uh, to speak it in its full voice. Now let us turn to the text itself and the kinds of questions, puzzles that that might populate a text like the Sulam and that you again uh, discuss in, in, in tremendous detail. Uh, in the book, I thought it, what might be useful for our listeners is if we pick a couple of examples uh, and through those examples perhaps talk a bit about ways in what are those puzzles, how are they addressed and how do they connect to a larger conception of this discipline that we find with uh, Al-Bihari. So I thought perhaps we could... Um, talk about the liar's paradox, which was extremely interesting, uh, what that is and, and how uh, what's the issue at hand and how it is resolved. And your discussion on the concomitants, I thought, was also really exciting and interesting. So maybe by, by taking those two examples, uh, could you dis- uh, discuss a bit what these issues are, how they're addressed, and how does the way in which Al-Bihari addresses them connect to his larger conception of this discipline of logic? Great, thank you. Uh, there, there's a bit of a you know conundrum in logic insofar as it is meant to be a tool of all the sciences, right? Its purpose is supposed to be that it is supposed to be materially hollow. Uh, there's no specific type, no specific proposition with any specific propositional claim that is relevant to logic. It's supposed to be a formal system. So its function, therefore, is to lead one from the knowledge of that which is known to the knowledge of that which is unknown. And that's why you have syllogisms of uh, various figures outlined in Aristotle and then enhanced and debated in the tradition that came after him. And within logic, of course, there's also the tradition of sophistical refutations, which are meant to guard against errors in reasoning and uh, to uh, allow a person to spot um, a person who's trying to mislead you in argumentation, either in form or in matter. So this is the main function of logic. But what ends up happening is that logic, of course, also makes the claim that its subject matter is second intentions, meaning those particular entities uh, that come to exist only insofar as they're conceptualized in the mind. So, for example, a proposition has no instance in the extramental world. Subjecthood has no um, existence in the extramental world. Predicatehood doesn't, and so on and so forth. So this second conception of logic and a kind of what I might loosely call a kind of nominalism begins to uh, take hold in the Arab-Islamic tradition after Avicenna, because this really is supposed to be the main subject matter of logic, although, of course, it is continuously presented as the tool of all the other sciences. Now, the problem with this is that if the subject matter of logic, the second intentions, and second intentions are objects that exist only insofar as certain things are conceptualized in the mind, then there is an epistemological gap. How is it that I take this object and my disquisition on this object of the mind to reflect reality that is extramental. How does it map onto it? By the time we get to Bihari, this idea that the subject matter of logic is second intentions becomes very serious. 
this becomes the main space within which Bihari's logic unfolds. The idea is, and Bihari's clear about it, is that the mind can conceptualize anything. It can, it can even conceptualize absurdities insofar as absurdities have certain characteristics. For example, you can conceptualize the joining of two contradictories as an absurdity and then make certain claims about it as such. Uh, or you can conceptualize the number two as odd. And insofar as you have posited it as such, by virtue of its very given self, certain uh, certain conclusions will follow from it. So this is I, this is basically the setup before I get into the puzzles now. Um, so the idea that the mind can conceptualize anything and then have claims about that thing by virtue of its very given self, for example, plays out in the liar paradox. This would be the claim, for example, that this statement of mine is false. The problem with it is that it militates against a basic principle of truth conditions that are recognized in logic, because any proposition which has a, a certain kind of a an observable or a claim or a claim that can have a verifying criterion must be either true or false. It cannot be neither and it cannot be both. I think this is basically understood to be a simple propositional uh, uh, characteristic. When you say this statement of mine is false, then if falsity is truly predicated of this statement, then this statement would fall in the class of things that are false. And therefore, your claim that it is false would be true. And then that would mean that this statement is in fact true. And now you can see the oscillation. If the statement is true, then it falls in the class of things that are true. And if it falls in the class of things that are true, then the claim that it is false is therefore false. So it goes back and forth. And this is the oscillation because a simple statement that seems to correspond in form to regular propositions is not yielding either truth or falsity exclusively. The solution that Bihari offers here is that he takes this statement, uh, you can put that in quotes, this statement of mine is false, to be an object of knowledge, namely a statement insofar as it is false, and once posited as such by virtue of its very given self, when you claim that it is false, then it is simply false, and there is no oscillation that takes place. He calls this the uh, Ijmali way of reading a proposition, a compressed way of reading a proposition, the problem emerges when you read it in an express form, in a mufassal form, in a tafsili form, because in that case, you're actually generating a proposition by the claim that the predicate false applies to that proposition, and that's where the oscillation takes place. So here is we have one example where Bihari takes this idea that anything can be conceptualized, even a proposition as a unified whole, yields a certain conclusion to this longstanding uh, conundrum, uh, this puzzle and paradox in the field of logic. I can certainly elaborate on the other one too, if you wish, Sheer Ali, but I've spoken for quite a bit, so I want to make sure that that the second example is uh, is something we want to engage. So I'll Absolutely. pause. Here. Absolutely. Please, Asad. Please go ahead. Okay. Well, the second example is, you know, it's the same kind of solution that you'll see. For example, um, you know, there's, there's a basic idea in definitions in the field of philosophy and logic that if you conceptualize something and conceptualize that which is essential to it, then the proper conceptualization would lead you to conceptualize the concomitants between the two things. So, for example, if you conceptualize man properly and if you conceptualize the rational properly, then there will be a relationship of a necessary concomitance between man and rationality. 
the puzzle is that if the conceptualization of the concomitant, uh, uh, let's say rationality, uh, and that of which it is a concomitant, namely man, if it generates a conceptualization of the concomitants between the two, then this conceptualization of the concomitants is itself going to be a concomitant of the relationship of necessary concomitants between the concomitant and that of which it is a concomitant. And now you're going to have an infinite regress. Each time you have a conceptualization of a concomitant, it'll be based on the existing necessary concomitants between that which is a concomitant and that of which is a concomitant. And as such, you will not be able to conceptualize things. Bihari's solution is to say that, well, you can resolve this problem by recognizing that the concomitants uh, is itself a mental conception. And insofar as mental conceptions are products of the mind, you can simply halt this uh, infinite series and, uh, and, and posit a mental object and be done with it. Now, there is a problem with this particular solution, and I don't think it's a particularly good one. And the problem is that it seems to be claiming that the mental locus or the mental space is something that, is, that has a certain reality distinct from uh, those items of existence that are extramental. And we may claim that that seems to make sense, but we do make certain claims where mental uh, objects, especially second intentions, uh, about them we make claims that are extramental. So, for example, we do say things like, you know, possibility is dependent on a cause. Uh, possibility is a second intention. Possibility does not actually exist out there in the extramental world. It is a certain modality that is recognized insofar as we conceptualize a certain mode of relation between two things. But we do make claims about possibility independent of the fact that it is a second intention. Uh, we make claims about propositions. They're also second intentions. Or we make claims about necessity, in fact, even about concomitants. So the problem here is that what Bihari is claiming, that concomitants is a mental consideration, and you may posit it as such, and end the infinite regress is going to run into the problem that, that you then therefore not be able to make extra mental real claims about entities that are merely mental. The solution at the end of the day through the commentarial tradition and through hints in the sullam is that what is posited in the mind, the concept itself, can be given as such. And once posited as such, then certain claims would be made of it by virtue of its very given self. Uh, so, for example, I can claim uh, and posit the number two as an odd object, conceptualize as such, once posited as such, and without regard to the fact of this positing, right? What they would call maqat in nazar, an i'tibar al-mu'tabir, without a view to the fact of it having been conceptualized as such, it will then yield certain properties by virtue of itself, and those properties will be true regardless of my mental conceptualization. So if two is posited as odd, then it will be true that its uh, multiples uh, would be of a certain sort, namely multiples that are true of all odd entities. So those are the kinds of conclusions, solutions, and, and, and approaches to the objects of logic that you find in Bihari. Um, it's a highly sophisticated text in that it moves away from a concern of logic as a tool of the sciences and making its object mental uh, considerations and conceptualizations, then using them to resolve paradoxes, and also at the same time claiming that these mental objects are real 
in in the sense that experimental objects can also be real. The next chapter uh, engages a really fascinating debate, uh, which uh, you term the Rampur debate, and it connects uh, the analysis of that uh, debate uh, to uh, your larger theoretical observations and arguments, again, about the commentarian tradition. So I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners to what this Rampur debate was about and who was it held between, and how do you then connect this debate and its unfolding with your underlying observations and argument about the commentarial tradition and logic? Sure, Shirali, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, the Rampur debate was held in 1916, and it's an archive that I found in Karachi, uh, uh, at the Barakat Academy. Um, this is a scholar who was who died uh, in the first half of the 20th century and was part of the Kharabadi tradition. Um, now, in, in brief, the debate begins with a, a more junior scholar compared to Barakat Ahmad, whose name was uh, Abdul Wahab al-Bihari. And he had written a commentary on a traditional text uh, and in that commentary, he finds, as one of the reports says, an excuse to take on Abdul Kharabadi, the teacher of Barakat Ahmad, on certain uh, positions that the latter had taken in one of his own commentaries on another work. Uh, and he introduces these objections in Rampur to a student of Barakat Ahmad by the name of Moinuddin Ajmiri. Um, this oral moment of debate then is conveyed by Moinuddin Ajmiri to his teacher, Barakat Ahmad, uh, who then arrives in Rampur to to defend his own teacher. The reason I take up this debate as an example of how commentaries work is that it shifts between the oral and the textual. So the debate itself is very short. The actual words of the two, what I call matins, right, the Abdul Wahab Bihari and Barakat Ahmad, those words themselves are not penned down, nor do they write them down. They're very pithy responses. Uh, they're elusive. And as a result of that moment, after the first brief reports about their communication is set out, both sides engage in partisan dialectics. So the supporters of Abdul Wahab Bihari then start writing commentaries on the very pithy set of responses that he had given, and those of Barakat Ahmad do the same thing. Those commentarial um, exercises in many ways reflect what we have lost in the written text, or what we think we have lost. Because here we have a living debate that's being reported, that shifts into orality and then goes back into textuality. The textuality is also filled with a certain kind of uh, characteristics that you would find in the Adab al-Bath in an oral space, which then shifted back to the textual space and so on. Uh, so it sort of demonstrates the living nature, the oral nature of the written word that we find in the Matan and Shar cycles. So I use this debate um, uh, because it gives us an internal view of the way commentary is written uh, extract certain conclusions from it and then see if those conclusions match on to my uh, reading of the text, the written text of the Sulam tradition. And they kind of do. Um, they, they generally do with some minor differences. Uh, they buttress the larger theoretical claims that are grounded in the text itself. I want to return to a theme that we were talking about earlier, but perhaps now we can do it in a little more detail, uh, which is this relationship between the hypotext and the hypertext. Um, and in the next chapter, you really demonstrate to the reader how this relationship connects to the main theme of this book, or the, actually the title of this book, uh, Palimpsests of Themselves. 
Um, if, if you could pr- briefly explain that, how does the title uh, connect to how you uh, conceptualize the relationship between the hypertext and the hypertext? And uh, if you could also speak a bit about the role of literary allusions and hints that you also did talk about earlier, but perhaps in a bit more detail, uh, perhaps with uh, the help of a couple of examples of how these hints and allusions work um, from the Sullam and then its commentarial tradition. Yeah, of course. Um, right. Uh, so the... Um, I find that at least um, rhetorically, let's start with, with, with the literary aspects and rhetorical aspects of commentaries. Uh, they in many ways reflect the way in which the Quran is written. Uh, you know, we have these expressions in the Quran, fat'amal, you know, and fatafakkar and ifham and so on. Uh, those same expressions after brief, elusive um, arguments in the mutton, mutun are usually very short, as you know. Uh, those same expressions are used at key moments, and they're taken by the hypertext to be isharat, right? Some hints and allusions to something fuller that needs to be explained and to be said. And they occur these these in the mutton. These expressions fatamal, fatadabbar, fatafakkar, and ifham, and so on, occur at key moments, um, and in such a fashion that the hypertext given the oral space within which these hypotexts were being taught, is aware, it knows where to go and how to redress and how to fill the mutton. So an example of this would be that, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get into the, the details and the technical aspects because those would be hard to convey orally. And I welcome the readers to read the book. But, you know, there's one discussion in the Sulam, for example, where uh, Al-Bihari, the author, posits a particular interpretation related to predicates. It's uh, it's a debatable interpretation, um, but he strengthens his position by refuting alternative positions, although does not really give any positive um, set of uh, evidence uh, to buttress his own position. He simply denies the validity of alternatives. And at that moment, he ends his uh, disquisition by saying fatadabbar. That's all he does. In other words, he's not given you proof for the validity of his final position. He simply refuted alternatives. Um, this fatadabbar, uh, for example, is taken by one of his commentators called Mullah Mubin uh, to be an ishara. He says fihi ishara. He takes it as an ishara, as an indication. Uh, and the ishara is that it is supposed to be an indication of a refutation that must follow of al-Bihari's own refutation in the text. In other words, Mubin takes Bihari to be undermining himself, which of course would seem counterintuitive insofar as he's trying to establish a positive position. But this work needs to be done. So he, he goes back to Bihari. He gives a refutation of one of the premises Bihari himself has posited in his text, and then he concludes it by saying fata'ammal. In other words, he he is now making you reflect further as to why the refutation of Bihari himself is necessary to establish the other fuller position that Bihari is offering. Now, the interesting thing here is that to make a final redress, to harmonize Bihari with himself, this command fata'ammal in Mubin is fulfilled by Mubin's quotation of Bihari's own self-commentary. In other words, the solution had already existed in Bihari, in his self-commentary on his own matan, he had presented a half-hashed argument, 
and another premise that itself actually undermined his final conclusion, leading his commentator to do the work of redress, ultimately arriving at his own self-commentary, and then to speaking through his commentator and through his self-commentary to harmonize his mutton. So this particular quotation from the self-commentary of Bihari is taken by the commentator Mubin, and he takes ultimately at the end of that disquisition that self-commentary and the discussion there to be yet another ishara to an earlier aporia that is proposed by Bihari in another part of the text, which forces them ultimately to return to an earlier lemma of the sullam and harmonize the whole thing. So this is what I mean by the curated work of the of the matin, right? At every level, he is leading the hypertext to speak it, and it knows in many cases how to redress itself because it's the information is available in the self commentary. It, he knows the hypertext knows how to uh, provide the redress, but he's not speaking. The hypertext it is not speaking for itself. Uh, it is curating and leading through hints and allusions the hypertext to speak for it. It's something like what Gadamer would say is the inner word of the text that is now being expressed uh, through these curated hints. It is in this sense, let me uh, conclude by saying that I've called the book and this mode of argumentation a palimpsest of itself, right? It's not that we have layers of erasure one upon the other that's going on. It's a continuous voice curated from the earliest moment that earliest moment, the matan itself is a fulfillment of an earlier dialectic, sometimes oral, sometimes textual, which then presents itself as a text that is in many ways oral, right? So is leading future generations to speak it, presenting itself in new forms as a palimpsest, a rewriting of its own self. The next layer would do the same thing, and the next layer would do the same thing, and so on. So it's in that sense that I have called them palimpsests of themselves. So the final question I want to ask you, um... Let me ask you a two-part question, actually, about uh, the labor of translation. Uh, the first, of course, being that uh, listeners should know that this book, in addition to this phenomenal analysis and chapters on the commentarial tradition, uh, the book actually concludes with uh, the translation of the Sullam by uh, Professor Asad Ahmed. Uh, so it contains a, a re- remarkably lucid uh, translation of a very difficult text as well. So the first question I want to ask you is about that translation uh, how did you approach uh, uh, that that task? What were some of the questions or sort of uh, puzzles that you had to think over? And how did you address them? If you could walk us through a bit the translation process, how did you conduct that? And sort of the second part of the question, again, to do with translation, but on a different register, which is the translation um, of this very complicated tradition of logic in South Asia into I guess, the language of the Western academic study of religion, Islam, etc. Um, uh, if you could speak a bit about that process as well, uh, as an author, uh, in terms of, you know, you, this, this is a deeply theoretical book, but you do make this claim earlier on that you do theory through footnotes, which I thought was a very uh, useful strategy. But if you could speak about translation on these two different registers, the actual translation of the sullam that you do, and then also the translation of this tradition into uh, a sort of Western academic language. Uh, both of those, if you could uh, reflect a bit on that process. Right. Uh, thank you. I mean, the two questions are obviously related, and let me see if I can capture the answer in 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 one go. I find translation to be uh, the most rewarding and also the most difficult task. Uh, on the one hand, a proper translation uh, would allow one to understand the text. If you have translated properly in a target language, 
uh, you have also resolved a number of problems. You have access to the text at that point. It's difficult because, of course, access is coming into a target language which has its own baggage. In many ways, these technical terms, especially, you know, in texts like that are texts of Kalam or Usul al-Fiqh or Mantiq and so on, um, the expressions have a long baggage and they're read a certain way along with that baggage by the, um, by the audience uh, for, which, uh, for whom this text was written. So when you translate them, you, you face the problem of putting a garb on these expressions that, in a language that has its own baggage. So, you know, how do I translate, you know, something like aqsan uh, naqil, for example? I mean, contraposition is an available translation. I think it makes perfect sense, of course. But contraposition carries a very specific sense within the history of Western logic uh, and a sense that is, that is tied to various debates um, about how contraposition works. Now, if I use that expression for my target English audience, they may be carrying that baggage with them in reading the Arabic text, which is available in translation. What I try to do as a compromise is in, in the vast number of cases, I translate the expressions as literally as possible. I try to remain consistent. And uh, I use footnotes to elucidate the problems that may arise in the translation and how those uh, translations and those concepts tie to alternative traditions, let's say the tradition of Western logic in Latin, for example, or Aristotelian logic and so on. The difficulty I face here is that, you know, translation is not meant to be conquest. Um, And the larger task of translation where you take the different parts and different expressions of a larger work and try to reassemble them through the shards of another language into a figure in a form that is identical or almost identical, this latter task is practically impossible. I think that's an idealized task. The former task of simply translating it in an idiom uh, that is available to the target audience um, has the problem of baggage. So this is where I often struggle. Um, my, con- my conclusion at the end of it, as I, as I said, is to stay as literal as possible and while trying to be as clear as possible, maintaining the general ethos and modes of presentation of the text. If the text is dense and elusive and difficult to read, that's how the translation will be. I use the footnotes um, and my commentary, extended commentary, to elucidate the content and concepts that are being presented. Uh, so I think that's as much as I can say on this um, on this issue of translating these technical texts. So as we're coming to the end of our time, um, so I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners what you're thinking of as your next project or what we can um, anticipate reading from you in the future. Oh, thanks. Um, well, I, I have two things that I have been working on, and both of them in some ways emerged out of the work that I did on the Sulam book. Uh, one of them is I want to write um, a history of the formation and contestations about the concept of nature in Islam, um, because we know that this particular concept, once established and embraced, uh, has many consequences, including in the field of the philosophy of law uh, in the West, uh, and fields such as, you know, physics and so on and so forth. Um, It's generally been argued that the nature of tabia, the, you know, the the idea of nature, the idea of tabia in the Islamic tradition was something that was generally rejected by occasionalism. The story is much more complex because it does serve an important purpose. It's instrumentalized in fields ranging from kalam to usul al-fiqh to fiqh and so on. So I'm curious about the work this concept is doing in the Islamic tradition, how it's negotiated, where is it 
rejected, under what uh, grounds and which contexts and through which details. So something like a history of nature in Islam, uh, I've been working on slowly. And the other project that also emerged out of this is that those authors of India in the 19th century who were writing texts on mantiq and similar disciplines are also engaged in a kind of discourse related to the issues of what I might call a kind of proto-nationalism. Uh, I'm interested in how their language and the concepts uh, are subverted uh, with the introduction of uh, other epistemes. Um, you know, the concepts such as hurriya and wataniya and so on uh, go undergo a revolutionary transformation between the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So what I'm interested in is, is looking at these modern ideas that have become part and parcel of our discourse in South Asia and how those particular concepts so quickly transform from the lens of traditional scholars who are using them to uh, different kinds of scholars, such as Iqbal and others. So those are the two projects that animate me these days. Palimpsests of Themselves, Logic and Commentary in Post-Classical Muslim South Asia by Professor Asad Ahmed, published by the University of California Press uh, just now in 2022. Uh, thank you so much, Asad, for the generosity of your time for these uh, really exceptional answers that I'm sure will uh, really benefit our listeners and uh, further incentivize for them to pick up this excellent book and to benefit from it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shirley. Be well. So this was my conversation with Professor Asad Ahmed about his wonderful new book, Palimpsests of Themselves. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS. Yes, that is New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.